I say who's good, you say he's good. Who's good? Who's good? I say all the, y'all say time, all the, all the, who's good? All the, I love seeing what you guys will do, like my little pet monkeys for Jesus. Um, We have been working through the book of Philippians. We're in the belly of chapter 2, a three-part series like Jacob mentioned on the word humility, what it means for us as believers. Today we're going to be looking at verses 12 through 16, and we're going to jump in looking at the wild, wild world of grammar. Are you ready for this? The word, he starts out, Paul talks in this section, the first word that he uses is therefore. Now, Going back to grade school, when you see the word therefore, you always ask, what's the therefore, therefore? Okay? In other words, I was just student teaching last fall with the fifth graders, and we worked through what we call transition words, right? And a transition word is, it connects one thing to another thing, and that's what therefore does. Therefore connects idea A with idea B, or thought A with thought B. So if thought A, mommy is tired and grumpy, therefore B, I would like to experience the rest of this van ride in absolute silence. Thank you. A, therefore B, right? So the question is, what, what's the therefore, therefore in this context, what was Paul just talking about? Well, he was talking about having, he said, have this mind in you that is yours in Christ Jesus. So what is the mind of Jesus that we are to have? And the mind was a mind of humility. We said it's not the proud mind, the proud mind that wants to be God or wants to be like God or that tries to please God in our own effort or ability, but to have a humble mind that lets God be God, that depends on, trusts in, and obeys God as our creator, we the created, and that God who has fully met our needs in Jesus, all of our needs, we are now freed up to think about other people and to serve others because we're good. God's met all of our needs. And in verses 5 through 11, Paul gave us this amazing look at the life of Jesus, this great example of a man who came. He, he thought about our needs, not his own. A man who demonstrated this by leaving heaven, by, by temporarily surrendering his place and privilege as God to come to this earth to humbly descend to us, to become nothing, to become man, to become a servant, and to become our sacrifice so that we might have life. Therefore, therefore, thought A, have this mind, have the humble mind that Jesus has. That's ours now in Christ Jesus. Therefore, because we are to have this mind, and then what we're going to look at today is two commands that Paul gives us, two ways that we're going to flesh out what it looks like to live with a humble mind. So the first thing we want to look at here is what I call the Christian workout plan, okay? We're going to have get some Jesus exercise going today. And I was looking, I was Google imaging uh, Christian workout, which was interesting. And this is what came up, uh, some clothing for Jesus. This one... I guess, well, that's kind of small. It says, the Lord is my strength, okay? That's pretty benign, uh, kind of lame. This one says, uh, Bibles and biceps. 
which I don't know exactly what that means. Like if you're curling Bibles, like you get the large print edition to really get your workout, pocket Bibles for the kids, I don't know. Uh, Then this one says God's gym, and it says let him lift your weights, which I think is a great idea. I would rather better him than me, right? Um, Then this one, I don't even know. He says he bled for me, I sweat for him. Now, I feel like that's getting, like, borderline sacrilegious. Uh, and then this one is bizarre. God strengthened me just once more. His strength, not mine. Do you know what they're referencing? That's when Samson pushed the pillars down, and he died. So I don't know. We, let's just quickly move on. Uh, the workout plan for the believer is that we work out what God works in. That's what Paul's going to say. We work out what God works in. So two parts, our part and his part. Let's look at our part first. We work out, verse 12. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, not only when I was with you, remember God, Paul started the Philippian church, not only when I was with you, but now much more in my absence, you continue to obey. Continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Now we see this verse, and this has always been a sort of a haunting verse to me, where it's like, wait a second, what is Paul saying, is this a works-based salvation? Well, notice Paul does not say work for your salvation. That's not his call. He doesn't say do a bunch of good things and then God will accept you. He says work out your salvation. Now, it's important to remember the context of this letter. Who is Paul writing to? He's writing to a group of believers. Paul is not writing to the unsaved, but to the saved. We see that in chapter 1 very clearly. To all God's holy people, or other translations say saints in Christ Jesus. The only ones who are in Christ Jesus are the redeemed. He says in verse 5, your partnership with me in the gospel. We're on team Jesus working to spread his fame. That's a reference to believers. And then verse 6, he who began a good work in you, he began a good work in those who are his children. So Paul is not addressing how to gain your salvation, rather how to grow in your salvation. And the word picture that he uses here, it was really helpful for me. He says, work out. And this word, it was used um, for those who were mining, who were working in the mines. And what they were doing was they were mining or extracting what was already there. When you're mining, you don't create what's in the ground. You are simply unearthing what God has already placed in the ground, just like our little dwarf friends. So working out your salvation means mining the realities of who we are in Christ. That God, he's going to say God works in. What God has placed in us, this great and wonderful salvation, we are to go in and extract the things that God has already put in us. It's to know, it is to believe, and it is to live out who we are in Christ. Now, in your bulletin, um, I gave you, we put in these little, uh, it's called Who Am I? If you you have your bulletin, that means you also got a Mary Jean hug. Um, And in this this little pamphlet, this is actually something uh, Pastor Larry passed out a few years ago, and it's just simply called um, Who Am I? Okay, Who Am I? Who we are, our identity in Christ. And part of, let's get practical, what does it mean to mine the realities of who we are in Christ? It's, it's to know, if we don't know these, okay, there's no way that we can live them out. And so part of what it means to, to mine, to work out your salvation, is to meditate, to chew on these truths, to claim them, the specific promises that God has given us, and then to live them out. So, for example, the first one on the list, it says, I am God's child. 
Well, we, we, we have to know that, first of all, that as believers, we are children of God. And to meditate on what does that mean? It means that he is my daddy and I am his son. It means I'm loved by him. I'm secure in him. I have his name. I know that he is always for me, that he protects me, that he provides me for me. But that also means that as my daddy, he's in charge. He is my authority. I do what daddy says or my butt gets a whooping. Sorry, bottom, we're in church. My bottom gets a whooping, right? And we know that even when he disciplines us, it's for our good. The Lord disciplines those he loves. So everything God does for us is our good. So we got to know that we are his children. We got to believe that the reality of being his children, but then we have to live that out. I have to live in obedience to my father. I need to walk in the security of knowing no matter what I do, he loves me and is for me. This is part of what it means. I want to encourage you this week, and we're going to talk about this at the end of the, the message, but to mine the realities on this paper, not because of anything about this paper. This just points us to the word of God who we are in Christ, to know it, believe it, and to live it. And then he says to mine these truths with fear and trembling. What in the world does he mean to mine, to, to work out your salvation with fear and trembling? Well, I, I can't think of a more spiritual place to take us than the 90s hit, The Sandlot. Um, you probably remember, uh, if you were, I guess we're, that's what we're doing, it's 90s week. Um, you remember that the team... Um, there's this group of ragtag boys they play in the sandlot, baseball in the sandlot. They lose, they, they, get, they lose all their baseballs. They need a new baseball. So the nerdy kid, the new kid there on the far right, he goes back to it. He goes, I know where it's a baseball. And he goes back to his house, and his stepdad has this baseball. And the baseball is sitting on the shelf on the stand, and so he goes to grab it. Well, what this kid doesn't know is that his baseball was signed by Babe Ruth. Now, some of you are like, I don't know what that means. Then you're not blooded American. Get out of here. <laughs> so, so he grabs the baseball, he brings it back, and they start playing with this Babe Ruth autographed baseball. Well, they hit it out of the park, it goes into, across the fence, home run, and it goes into the neighbor's yard. Well, the neighbor has this ferocious attack dog who guards, eats, gets the ball, and will not let it go. When the nerdy boy tells the other boys who had signed the baseball, who he calls Baby Ruth, the boys, they know exactly who Babe Ruth is. They hold with fear and trembling the truths of this baseball. And they know what it means. They have a respect and a responsibility toward this baseball. And the rest of the movie is trying to get this baseball back from evil attack canine dog. Because they know what they have in their possession. And they don't treat it flippantly. But they have fear, and trembling. And likewise, God has given us salvation, autographed by the blood of the Lamb, far more valuable than any baseball signed by Babe Ruth. And Paul says, do not mind these truths. Do not work out the realities of what Christ, I mean, do we realize that God has put Jesus, the life of Jesus, in us as believers? And he says, don't take this flippantly. Do not hold these precious realities of who you are now. With, don't, don't treat it flippantly. Treat it with fear and respect and the responsibility. We, we said in chapter 1, we are to live in a manner that shows that Jesus is more valuable to us than anything. Know what we have and walk with fear and trembling.
So we work out, B, what God works in. We have to understand there is nothing as human beings, and specifically there's nothing as believers, that we have that God didn't first give us. Nothing. And, and God, as creator, he has, he has this plan for us. He has this wonderful plan for each of us, and, and it's different for each of us. And we saw in chapter 1, it's God, he says here, for God is, uh, who works in you both to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. Okay? In chapter 1, he said, he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Jesus Christ. And so the one who has a plan for you, the one that started that plan in you, he's going to complete it. Not us, not my strength, not my abilities. He's going to do it. And how is he going to do it? Look ahead to chapter 4. And my God will supply all my needs according to the riches of his glory. Of not my glory, of his glory in Jesus Christ. There's nothing, there's nothing that God asks of us that he does not also provide for us. And so... We work out what God works in. Now notice here that Paul says, it's God who works in you both to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purposes. And this is, this is incredible. New Living Translation says it this way. Giving you the desire and the power to do what pleases him. Now, this is extremely important, that God not only gives us the ability to do what he asks us to do, but he gives us the desire to do so. And this is why this is so important. We always do what we most want to do. Think about that for a second. We always do what we most want to do. And you say, no, 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 Justin. There are a lot of times, and I want to do something, and I don't do it. I show great restraint. But let me explain it this way. Let's say you're at an office party, okay? And there is this really good-looking cake sitting there on the table. And you, more than anything, want to eat the entire cake. Okay, it's Bob's farewell cake. And as much as you love Bob, you'd more rather eat his cake, right? Now you go, well, I want to eat the cake, but I didn't. So see, I, I overcame my desires. No, you didn't. You, what happens is, <clears throat> excuse me, your desire to not be seen as a greedy cow is greater than your desire to eat that cake. You see, and, and so what happens is we have these kind of immediate impulses and, and desires, but deeper down is a desire to be accepted, to be socially, you know, uh, 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 you don't want to be seen as somebody who just plows their face into a cake, right? And so we always, we always do what we truly most want to do. And one of the really cool things about what God does, Paul says, is that he gives us the desire. He, he works the desire into us because then the acting will follow. If that's what we most want to do, then we're going to do it. I was thinking about this in my own life. You know, I, a couple years ago, man, I did not want to be a pastor. I didn't at all. You know, I was going to school. I was going to get my teaching degree. I was doing my thing. It was all good. And I had to keep hiding from the elder board because they were, kept asking me. And Larry, Pastor Larry, is praying over me and just trying to, like, you know, whatever they can do. And it just wasn't something I desired. But, but I, can't, I can't tell you the most powerful personal testimony I've ever seen in my own life to, to God working in me was he didn't grab me by the collar and say, Justin, you're going to be a pastor, whether or not you like it, and just drug me into it. What God did was he changed my desires. 
And what I didn't, I had no interest in doing before, now I had a passion for. And all I can tell you is I just said, God, it's not what I want. What do you want? What desire are you working in me? And he changed my heart. He changed my desires. And then the acting followed. And here I stand as a pastor. And for us, we don't have, see, we don't have, we're not born with the ability or the desire to think about other people, to put others before ourselves, to love and to serve others. We're born with an innate desire to elevate self, to focus on self, our own needs. And what God does, he doesn't just say, do it, love people, and you'll like it. What he does is he changes our desires. And all of a sudden, we start to want to meet the needs of others and to pour our lives out like our Savior did for us for the sake of those around us. It was incredible. And now Paul explains, the second point is how we work this out. We're going to talk a little attitude, okay? This is called no workman's comp, laning, okay? We're not allowed to complain as believers. Now this is what he says. We work out without whining. Here it is, verse 14. Do everything, do everything without grumbling or arguing. Okay, now this is, it's kind of insane that, that Paul, I mean, he, he says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, God who works in you, and then he goes to, to don't whine, don't grumble. It seems like a weird place to start um, fleshing this out for us. The word complaining or, or grumbling, it can be, um, it is also translated, it might be in your translation, murmur, okay? And the word murmur is an automatopoeia, okay? You know, like the words buzz or hiss or bang. It's a word that the name is the sound, okay? So when we grumble and complain, we murmur, 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 right? So it's just kind of the, 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 literal, uh, the literal expression of the heart. And as we, we, we might think it's a weird place for Paul to start, but as we peel back the layers of, of why we complain, we'll see at the heart of it, uh, it's, it's pure evil. Look at what it says. Um, Dwight Pentecost says this. Complaining is an outward expression of an inner lawlessness and rebellion that shakes the fist in the face of God and repudiates his right to rule, that questions his love and his wisdom. Now, there's a lot of kind of big fancy words there, but really all he's saying is that the heart of complaining is a refusal to trust God as God. To, to acknowledge that, that he's in charge. And it questions his love, that he has our best interest in mind, and it questions his wisdom, that he knows what's best for us and knows how to accomplish those purposes. That's what Dwight's saying. Now, what does that sound like from what we talked about last week? That's pride, right? We said pride is the root of all sin. The reason that we grumble and complain is because we're proud. If there's any group of people that were fit for the murmuring hall of fame, it would have been the Israelites, right? And you remember the story. They're in Egypt, um, and they are slaves to the Egyptians, and God miraculously rescues them. He sends these plagues. He just, he wipes out the Egyptians. He saves them. He parts the stinking sea for them, okay? Leads them into the desert. And the first thing they do is they start to murmur. Okay, we're out here, we got no food, we got no water, why did you take us out of Egypt? We were better back there. So then God, he, he starts literally showering food from the sky. Okay, he just starts throwing manna at them from the heavens. And what do they do? More murmuring. 
They said, well, uh, we're sick of all this miracle manna. Didn't you have some protein up there, God? Can you do some meat for us? So then he starts sending meat to them, and it goes on and on. And, and as you read these passages, you're going, you big babies, right? Like, can't you see all that God has done for you on your journey, and you still won't trust him? You ingrates. Who could ever be so... Oh. Oh, okay. Now I see what God's trying to tell me, right? I'm Israel. I'm the murmurer. I do the same thing. How many times has God proven himself faithful to me, and yet I refuse to trust him or let him control my life? And I complain, and I murmur, and I murmur because I have too much to do. I murmur because I have nothing to do. I murmur because everybody else is all up in my business. I murmur because nobody seems to care about my business, right? I, I murmur about the weather. I, I, I murmur about my money or lack thereof, right? I murmur in a box and I murmur with a fox, right? You just, everything is whining, complaining. I don't have my way. It's not what I want. And all the time, this murmuring is an indication of a proud heart. It's an assumption that demands things to go my way. And it's the arrogance to think that I know the right way, okay? And to believe that I deserve that way. And the opposite of a proud heart is a humble heart. And the the humble heart is content in all situations. Because humility, contentment, communicates that God's in control and that he knows better than I know. We have to believe that A, God is all-powerful, that B, God is for us, and that C, God knows best. And even when we're going through trials, even when things are not going how we want them to go, do we believe in our heart of hearts that his way's better, that God's way is better, even in in the face of of the darkest nights? Do we believe that God's way is best? And what we do is it's not just stopping the murmuring, but it's replacing murmuring with thanksgiving. And it's praising God that he is God and that he's good. And that's something that he works in us, because that ain't coming from me. And what Paul says is, he goes, if you do everything without complaining and arguing, this is what it leads to. Do everything without grumbling or or arguing, so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky as as you hold firmly to the word of life. And then I will be able to boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor in vain. The next thing that Paul says, there are three things. If we do all things without grumbling or complaining, there's three things that we become. Okay, and they all start with B. First one is we become blameless in a depraved world. Blameless in a depraved world. So, so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God, without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Now this word blameless, it does not mean sinless perfection. Raise your hand if you have experienced sinless perfection in your life. Good. I don't have any liars here this morning. 
none of us qualify for that, okay? But what he's saying is the word blameless, it meant that, you're, that people can't point a finger at you and accuse you about the way you live. It's being above reproach. If I'm to spread the good news of Jesus at my work, and yet the entire time I'm lazy, I'm stealing company time, uh, you know, I, am, I have a filthy mouth, uh, I'm, I'm gossiping just like everybody else is, then what am I really offering? What is it I'm really offering? I mean, people, if people point the finger at me and go, you're no different than the rest of us, why should I believe in you, your God? What is it about you that's different from the rest of the world? And I was thinking about this in relation to some of our current events, thinking about the, uh, the transgender bathroom situation, and hey, this is not, this is, <laughs> we're not going to get into all that right here. I'm not going to talk details. But this is just something I want to challenge us as we think in regard to that in particular and things along those lines. I've seen a lot on social media. I've seen a lot in our own local Christian circles. I've seen a lot of murmuring and arguing that doesn't look any different than this crooked and warped generation. And here's my question. Are we simply trying to be right, pun partially intended, Are we just trying to be right? Or is our main goal, as in all things, to love people and to point them to Jesus? Is that what we care about most? Because we're always going to do what we most want to do. And the temper tantrums and the name-calling and the drawing of hard lines does not seem to be the humble, blameless lifestyle that Paul's calling us to here. Can, can, in these situations, does the world just point us with an accusing finger and say, you're just like everybody else? Just chew on that. It's, it's all, I'm just throwing that out there. Second thing, we're to be brilliant in a dark world. Because then you will shine among them like stars in the sky. This is such a beautiful phrase. We know that John 8, he says, Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Jesus, Jesus is the light. And it's by him that the blind can see He is our vision. He is our light, not just the light that we look at, but the light through which we see everything else we can't see without Jesus. And we have this incredible privilege as believers to be lanterns that shine the light of Jesus. Not our light, but but his light. He's the light of the world. He's in us, and he shines out through us for the world to see. Matthew 5 talks about this. It says, you are the light of the world. Light like a city on a hilltop that cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and then puts it under a basket. Hide it under a bushel? No, right? Instead, a lamp is placed on a stand where it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your good deeds shine out for all to see so that everyone will praise your heavenly Father. The way we live shines Jesus out for the world to see and to glorify him because that's where the light comes from. Ephesians 5 is a similar thing. Paul says, for once you were full of darkness, but now you have light. Where? Light from the Lord. It's his light. So live as people of the light, right? Live as people of light. Live out what you are. You're, you, you have light, shine that light. So the question is, he says, then you will shine among them like stars in the sky. Well, when will we shine like stars in the sky? Well, when, back up, the then, what's the then pointing to? Become blameless and pure. When we are blameless and pure, when the world can't point a finger at the way we live that's askance from the gospel, we're shining. Well, how do we live in a way that's blameless and pure? Keep backing it up. Do everything without grumbling or arguing. When, when we are content 
in him, when we trust him and we don't grumble and complain, you realize how radically different we look from the rest of the world that's demanding their rights, that whines about everything, that complains and argues about everything. And when someone treats us like garbage, when we go through a difficult trial, when we don't get our way, and we don't grumble about it, and we don't fight back, and we, and we don't complain, we shine like stars. But when we humbly trust our God and we choose joy in the midst of trials, we choose contentment in the midst of lack or not having what we think we need, we shine like stars in a, in a proud, entitled world. And he says, we shine like stars as we hold firmly to the word of life. So what does it mean to hold firmly to the word of life? There's two expressions uh, that they pointed to in the Greek when, when Paul wrote this, and I, I think both of them are applicable. The first thing it meant was to hold it forth, and it was the picture of a host at a banquet offering their guests wine. That's right, wine. It's in the Bible. Don't shoot the messenger. So he's holding wine to offer it to them. And what, what, what I think Paul is saying here is when the world sees our light shining, and they ask about the hope in us. Remember First Peter? He says, be ready to give an answer when someone asks about the hope that's in you. Because our good deeds shine. They go, what's different about it? Why aren't you complaining about everything? Why aren't you arguing about everything? We have to be ready to give an answer. And what we hold forth is not wine, but it's the word of life. What we offer this world is the word of life. The word of life is the good news of what Jesus has done for us. And we offer dead people the ability to be alive again. What an incredible gift. And what is that gift? What is the word of life? In the beginning was the word. And the word was with God and the word was God. Jesus is the word. And we have this incredible gift of Jesus himself as the word. And the, and the written word that tells us about the living word is also alive and active. Hebrews says it's an alive, it's a living word. It's not just a book with words in it. What we're holding, it's a supernatural, alive thing. And so when the world asks about our shining lights, we offer them the word of life. This phrase also meant to hold fast, and it would talk about, the, the word picture was, um, you know, a dark harbor. This was before lighthouses. We'd use a lighthouse now. But they would have these towers, and they would light fires on top of them, and the watchman of the ship was to hold fast his gaze on that fire so that they could be safely guided through the dark, stormy waters. And in the same way, this could be translated, we shine like stars as we hold fast, as we fix our eyes on Jesus, as we keep our gaze steadily on him, just like Peter in the water. When we take our eyes off that light, we start to sink. But as long as we keep our eyes on Jesus, we walk on the water. All right, so personally, I like both of them. We offer the word, the world, the, the, world, the word of life, and we hold fast to him. And then finally, we're, we're blameless, we're brilliant, and we're boastworthy in a dying world. Paul says, and then I will be able to boast on the day of Christ that I did not run in or labor in vain. Finally, Paul says, if you continue to mine out these truths of the grace that you have in Jesus, as you hold them with the respect and the responsibility, the fear and the trembling, to realize what you have is the most valuable thing in the world, and you live this truth out, Without the murmuring, without the complaining, without the arguing, you shine like stars, and I have something to boast about, and it will all be worth it. You see, 
Think about all that Paul had done for the Philippians, that just like Jesus, he put them in front of himself. Paul was beaten for them. He was put in prison for them. He taught them day in and day out. He laughed with them. He cried with them. And Paul says, if you keep your eyes fixed on Jesus, then every whip on my back, every moment spent in jail will be worth it because there's this day that Jesus is coming back, the day of Christ. And, and, and I'm going to be able to present what by his grace and power I have done. And it will all, it'll all be worth it. So wrap things up here. We, we work out what God works in. So how do we flesh this out? How do we take this home? Um, you know, I, I encourage you to take this sheet. And again, it's not the magical words on this sheet. It points us to the word. These truths are all found in the word of God. And it has the references to all the truths. Um, to mine these truths this week with fear and trembling. And to kind of walk you through, I mean, what that looks like. I'm, I'm not going to get overly, you know, detailed in this. God's going to work through you because he's going to work through you. But first of all, we've got to know, if we don't know the truth, Christ, the Holy Spirit can't grow us in the truth, right? I mean, he's, hand, he's, he's handcuffed. We've, we've got to know the truth. We've got to know who we are in Christ. We've got we've to meditate on it. We've got to chew on it. We've got to memorize it. We've got to be in the Word. If we're not in the Word, if we don't know these things, the Holy Spirit cannot grow us in these things. So first, we have to know them. Secondly, then we have to go. We are called to a walk of faith. It's not a sit of faith. It's not a nap of faith. It's a walk of faith. And as we go, and it's scary, okay, like Indiana Jones, we don't know. It's invisible. We're going to place that foot down and just trust that God is going to catch us, that God is going to give us sure footing. And as we go, so our our job is to know and, and to go. And then what God does is he's the one that will grow. And as we go forward, as we work out these realities of who we are in Christ, it's God who is going to work in us the desires and the abilities to do what he's called us to, to finish the good work that he started. So let's do all things without grumbling or complaining, shining like stars, so that on that day of Christ Jesus, those who have worked those truths into us that God has used in our lives will be able to boast about what they've done by the grace of God. Jesus We are thankful. God, we are, we are thankful. We have nothing to complain about. Nothing. The only thing we deserve is eternal separation from you. And yet, in Christ, you've given us these beautiful and precious promises. I pray that we would hold fast to them. I pray that we would mine them, that we would work them out, that we would know them, we would claim them, believe them, and then live them out, Lord. And as we live them out without complaining or, or murmuring, knowing that you are God, you're in control, and you're good. I pray that we would shine with the light of Jesus into our communities so they would not be able to point the finger at us. And Lord, we're not perfect. None of us are. That's why we need Jesus. That's the purpose of the gospel in the first place. But I pray that we would become a people, a people who would shine like stars without grumbling and complaining, that would hold fast, that offer the world the word of life as we keep our gaze on Jesus. And it's in his beautiful name that we pray. Amen.